Welcome to the AIA Buzzworthy Analytics Podcast, where we provide an update on economic indicators and discuss the data-driven look ahead. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with macroeconomic indicators, then we're going to give you an update on financial indicators. Uh, we'll end the uh, economic indicators with industrial uh, sectors, and then after that, we're going to have some fun here. We're going to have some fun, do some buzzworthy analytics um, stories that are fun and crazy, uh, but they're all going to be data-driven. So we're going to start with GDP. And so, Stephen, uh, can you give us an update on how uh, GDP looks moving forward? But first, give us an update on where it's at now, where it's been, where it's going. Uh, but Stephen, can you give us an update on GDP? Ben, thanks for that. Yeah, happy to run through it. So U.S. quarterly GDP was up in the fourth quarter of 2020, a whopping 33% from the prior quarter. Uh, that's bringing it up to $18.6 trillion. It's a very impressive sounding uh, number. The, this is the largest quarter on quarter increase we've ever experienced in the entire history of the universe. Uh, but we're still well below our pre-COVID level peaks on terms of GDP. So the, uh, the, the uptick is obviously due to the gradual reopening of the economy that we experienced in the third quarter, and it looks encouraging. However, if we turn to more contemporaneous data, if we look at the consumer expenditures that we've seen for the month of December, uh, we're, we're seeing things start to fall off. So uh, spending overall fell 0.4% in December, uh, quarter on quarter, and, and much of that was led by a decline in durable goods. Uh, and that's actually been the, uh, you know, the category of consumer spending which has been leading the charge uh, over the, this uh, pandemic period. We've had uh, goods and services down still 5% year, year over year, uh, whereas durable goods uh, purchases expenditures have been up 13%. Uh, and so what we're seeing here is that the, uh, the, the recent surge in sort of pandemic cases has been uh, really weighing on the economy, and we're starting to see that slowdown in spending in the near term. Uh, you asked for a, a forward-looking view on this, and uh, honestly, with the GDP, I think as with everything else that we're going to talk about today, all we're looking at is uh, how quickly are we going to recover from uh, the, the, the coronavirus pandemic? How quickly is the economy going to get back together? We're all excited about the vaccine that's around the corner and that many of our, our, our parents and friends and neighbors have started to get already. Uh, but what we're really looking for is, is you know, with this new surge of cases that's coming on, how long is it really going to be before the economy starts to get back to normal? So why are we seeing this, this uh, positive performance in durable goods throughout the pandemic and, and this current drop-off? Well, I'm speculating here, but obviously as we've all been kind of homebound and locked into a, a, our, our patterns, which is limiting the services sector, so we're not going out to eat, we're not going to restaurants, we're not going on vacation. Uh, but anecdotally, what you hear a lot about is people uh, doing those home projects that they've been putting off, building a, a, you know, building new wings to their house or extensions there. Uh, definitely, we're all spending more on computer equipment than we ever had before. And uh, uh, so, you know, a lot of the kind of permanent durable goods spending seems to be a replacement, almost a, a consolation prize for the, the inability to go out and socialize like we normally do. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Stephen. And it's really important to look at consumer spending because that makes up 70%, uh, 65 to 70% of our GDP. Um, and we are a demand center for the world. Does anybody have an idea of uh, what retail will look like moving forward? I know that the numbers 
for December came out and uh, obviously we expected numbers uh, to be a lot lower than the previous year considering that uh, a lot of people are struggling with jobs but um, I think they weren't as bad as we anticipated. I don't really have a view. I can only say from the number of Amazon packages showing up at my house that uh, the retail spending seems to be pretty strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's funny because we could look at numbers all day, but we could also, because all of us are consumers spending, we could actually look, uh, and, and this is an open discussion for everybody around this, this table, is when you went to stores shopping, if you did go to uh, physically, if you went inside stores, how did it look like? Because for me, people were still spending. Uh, I remember I got the last um, Nintendo Switch, and there was a guy behind me asking for it, and he was really irate uh, because he wanted that. So to me, it looks like we had a pretty good um, holiday season in terms of spending, but, um, I mean, it's not surprising that the numbers were a lot lower uh, due to the pandemic. Well, it was interesting to see that personal income had decreased in November and December. Um, and so that definitely had an impact. I was forgetting, I had seen a statistic recently that was saying that, that spending was down in December over the prior months. And that's, I mean, that's a trend that you wouldn't typically see just due to the holiday season and um, and just a lot of that, you know, holiday shopping and travel. And, and that was shocking to me that we would see a decrease month over month in December. Uh, but personal income was down 1.1% in November. So that is, I mean, that's pretty significant. Yeah, I guess it's, you could look at it for, from two different perspectives. You could look at it from those who are struggling, uh, who don't have jobs, who are, uh, going to food food banks or, or you know places just to just to get the basics, um, you know they probably had horrible Christmases and probably didn't spend well. But if you look at those who did have jobs, with tourism shut down and not being able to go anywhere or maybe make the uh, spend as much as they would have on um, going to places, maybe uh, tour you know tourists, you know Disney, you know what have you. So you have more money in your pocket, and we could see that in the in the data because uh, savings increased. Uh, personal income did decrease because of those who didn't have jobs, but we, we do have savings that increase, and with that, uh, those uh, who are employed um, probably spent um, a lot. Um, now, I did look at a consumer spending report, and a lot of the spending was on construction. Uh, so there's a lot of home projects, uh, home improvement projects, um, and I'm pretty sure that. Uh, the Home Depot and Lowe's are um, seeing a lot of higher sales uh, due to that. Yeah, so total retail uh, from the uh, traditional holiday period, which is November 1st through December 24th, actually increased 2.4%. Uh, and this is total retail excluding auto and gas. Now, if you're talking about the 70 days, uh, 75 days of Christmas, which is uh, October 11th through December 24th, we have a total retail spend increase of 3%, and that is also excluding auto and gas. And this data is from the MasterCard Spending Pulse. It's, um, and this is not, uh, this is just an estimate. Um, but it's, uh, we're thinking that when the uh, consumer spending report comes out that this would be pretty close. 
Now, what's interesting is that if you look at the uh, sectors of retail, uh, if you look at apparel, uh, you had a 19.1% decrease um, a year-over-year growth. But if you're just talking about e-commerce, so everything that's purchased online, you had a 15.7% increase. So uh, if you want to try to understand that better, just think of it as your total. But if you're just looking at e-commerce, uh, it was very positive, but your total was a 19.1% decrease in apparel and clothing only. Um, so that, if that factors into e-commerce as well, then you have to expect that department stores were really, really down, your brick and mortar stores. Um, and that makes sense, right? So you have a pandemic, people don't want to go in and purchase or be around other people. Uh, E-commerce was already strong before uh, the pandemic. And so when you have a pandemic, you're just going to have stronger sales in terms of uh, internet sales. Now, retail in terms of home improvement, um, total was 14.1% increase uh, in 2020 uh, during the holiday season versus the year before. So you have a 14.1% uh, uh, increase, but in terms of e-commerce alone for home improvement, it was nearly an 80% increase. So those are a lot of the bright spots. Um, but to sum it all up, yeah, retail did pretty good uh, during the holiday season in 2020, specifically, specifically e-commerce. You know, one other aspect of this that uh, we, we probably should pay attention to, especially as we talk about forecasting going forward, uh, so looking at the personal income, what we really see is the, the spike in personal income that was tied to stimulus money that the government had, had put out. So people getting you know, direct checks or getting uh, additional loans to the government kind of supporting, uh, you know, supporting their ability to, to continue to function and spend and, and get through. And so that came in a big surge. It, it was kind of slowed down in recent uh, months. Uh, so it may be interesting to see what happens with a uh, new administration and a new government and a new uh, sort of uh, commitment towards more stimulus spending uh, for the pandemic to see if that's going to trickle through into uh, really more consumer spending going forward. And it's interesting with this, the savings numbers that we look at, a lot of times as economists, we'll look at savings as an indicator of uh, the public's perception of the direction that the economy is going. And so while your personal income may be going down, if you're seeing a you know recession coming forward, you have a little bit of uncertainty about your job or what the economy is going to look like in the next 12 months, you're more prone to save more of that money. You're not going to go out and make large purchases. You're not going to uh, you're you're going to hold your money a little closer, a little bit closer. Uh, so that that is a big indicator when it comes to. And so it's this this recession has been interesting because what you do see is that it, it almost looks like a lot of um, a lot of the population is looking at this as a temporary blip and not necessarily as a long term issue. So when you're seeing these savings, so our savings rates are going down. Um, and personal income is going down, but you see that housing has been extremely hot. I mean, the, the housing market, the, here in Houston, you have, you know, houses on the market for an average of six days in the last data that I was looking at a couple of, I mean, which is, it's crazy, especially because we've been so tied to oil and gas. And so you would really think the opposite based on the contraction in the economy. 
Um, but what you do see is a lot of people are seeing this pandemic and this recession as um, as temporary, as something that will you know be resolved when the vaccine comes around and a solution is right around the corner. That's a good point. Yeah. So according to the conference board, the base forecast for Q1 of 2021 in real GDP growth is 2.0% and an annual expansion of 4.1% for 2021. Now, again, all this was is really based on consumer spending as it makes up the majority of GDP. And a lot of it really has to do with consumer spending of those uh, who are unemployed, if they get uh, their jobs back, and that all depends on the services. So let's go ahead and talk about unemployment. So, uh, Juliana, how is unemployment at the moment, and where is it headed? Yeah, so the Fed just adjusted their unemployment forecast for 2021. So initially they were saying that it would be at 5.5%, and they just dropped that to 5%. So that went hand in hand with their updated GDP forecast with a little bit better of an expansion, a little bit larger of a uh, GDP expansion for 2021. Um, so that is obviously good news, but we are not projecting to see pre-pandemic unemployment levels until 2023. So another thing to note within these statistics is that our labor force participation uh, is it took a massive plummet. So it plummeted 3% from the beginning of uh, the pandemic to like shortly afterward, it, it fell from 63.4% to 60.2%. So that is a huge dip. And just as a point of reference, in 2008, the labor force participation fell from 66.2% to 65.7%. And that was over the course of a year. So that was a much smaller decrease, uh, but it also happened over the course of the year. We saw that three percent decrease in the matter in a matter of months. So since June, we popped back up to about six, the mid sixty-one percent labor force participation rate, but that is still the lowest that we have seen, maybe ever. I don't know how you know I, the data that I saw. You know, it, it's it is extremely low. Um, so one of the things that is notable, and it does tie in with the GDP, is that 80.3% uh, of the labor force is works in the services sector. So, I mean, that's a huge proportion of our, of our economy that's working in that sector. And we're seeing that proportion grow. So by 2029, they're forecasting an additional 1% of the labor force is going to be working in services. So that's not contracting. Not contracting. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a pretty permanent trend. Thanks, Juliana. And I really find that interesting that during after the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009, that it fell uh, that much and it never really re fully recovered. Um, does anybody know why we never recovered uh, up, back up to the 65, 66% after the Great Recession? I mean, first of all, after every recession, you do see a lot of people who permanently leave the workforce. Uh, additionally, we have an aging labor force. And so we have the baby boomers who are going to retire. Maybe after a recession, they lose their job, they leave the workforce, and they think it's temporary. But uh, when they find out how challenging it is to get a job later on, they decide, hey, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to retire. Uh, so we have, it, it's a 
you know, it's a um, combination of an aging workforce and also just a challenging labor market. You see a lot of discouraged, a lot of discouraged people not getting back on. What, what do you think about the role of, of technology in this? With uh, um, every time you do have these kind of shifts and people lose their jobs, a lot of times with technology in particular, you find ways of doing things more efficiently with fewer people. Uh, you know, we've seen that throughout kind of the dot com era as, as you know, companies finally got around towards streamlining their back office operations. Uh, and and now on the horizon, we see kind of maybe it's a little science fictiony right now, but we're we're almost at that point. Where Cars that drive themselves. We have you know, uh, fast food places that are just robots serving up the food for you. And so, in, in, in all these little ways, we're sort of removing the roles for all these traditional service sector jobs. Uh, and is that just speculation? Do you think that's really something to what we're seeing the job numbers right now? I think, well, so for one, um, but <laughs> That this has been an issue, or this has been a point of conversation for as long as technology has been booming, right? So every year it feels like we say, "Oh my gosh, robots are going to come in and they're going to come and take our jobs," right? And so this is a, a constant source of conversation, and it is worth talking about because in so say the Internet of Things has been a, a major change that we've seen, and it's one of those things. It's like, wow, are we eliminating the need for people? You know, are we eliminating the need for uh, people who are out there counting scaffolding, or, or so on and so forth, and some of these more um, some of these more manual positions, right? So one of the things that's interesting, and I can really only speak to the construction industry right now, but one of the big things, and I think it it does extend to other industries, um, we have an aging labor force, and one of the things that you see is is especially in industries that have a lot of um, Oh, I'm not even going to think of the, the term right now. Well, you have an aging labor force with a lot of information stored in their head about yeah. how a process is supposed to go and how to efficiently mm -hmm. run. Yeah, so the institutional knowledge. Thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, tribal knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a lot of individuals with tribal knowledge who are exiting the labor force. And there is a large issue that we're seeing in that industry in particular where we are losing best practices every time a someone in construction with 40 years of experience leaves, mm -hmm. especially in the industrial side, um, because it is so technical and it is oftentimes very specific to individual types of processes, individual plants, and so on and so forth. And so what we're seeing instead of this, because that's been a big thing in construction as well, where it's, the concern is these robots are coming in and taking our jobs and, you know, this is going to be, this is getting rid of jobs. But really what it's doing is it's filling these gaps that trends in our labor force are leaving. Hmm. And so I don't see people, unless we come up with a universal basic income, people are always going to be seeking jobs and we are going to have a place to take them. Right. So uh, according to many economists, uh, technology and automation is the number one uh, I wouldn't say job killer, but it does eliminate a lot of jobs that you would normally have a person doing. Um, and if you, according to the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, every year they come out, they come out with a 10-year forecast on jobs. And one of the uh, fastest, um, not growing, but I would say declining uh, in jobs is the cashier. And you can clearly see it when you go to the supermarket. Now, uh, I think Walmart is trying to convert all of their uh, check out to um, 
manual uh, do-it-yourself sort of checkout uh, as opposed to having a cashier do that for you. Um, so we could clearly see that happening in retail. Um, in the industry, um, I was talking to a gentleman the other day, and uh, he was telling me that he works with uh, drones and technology, and what they do is they do, uh, instead of having someone manually go to a site, uh, whether it be a refinery, chemical plant, or something, they, what they do is they have a remote drone that goes in there and does an observation with 360-degree uh, cameras and views, and uh that is that definitely replaced. Um, I would I would say converted a job from someone walking into there versus someone more to someone more behind a computer and maybe looking at metrics. So we're becoming a lot more analytical in what we do. Um, so I want to say jobs are declining. I say jobs are shifting. Right, right. They're becoming more easy. Yeah. Well, Easy yeah, to do. Yeah. different. And one of the things that's interesting, and you're absolutely right, but anytime you see a large shift in the way that processes go, so when you have the industrial revolution, yeah. whenever you have these large shifts, there is a portion of the population that suffers from long-term unemployment because you are readjusting to a new normal. And so that doesn't mean that we should stop progress. That doesn't mean we should not use drones instead of a person on the ground because there's obvious benefits to being more technical, more analytical. Um, and so there will be, I mean, it sounds cold, but I'm, I'm an economist, so, <laughs> so I'm going to be a little cold. <laughs> but there will be, um, a, there is a human impact to every change within our technology. And so, but one of the things is if we can eliminate more non-technical uh, jobs, if we can have more training required or more, I, I'm trying to think of how I want to say this. Um, if we can shift our labor force to a more educated and more technical labor force, then we are better off as a society. Right, right. And um, it goes back to, what was that story where we all read uh, early on in our business careers, who moved my cheese? <laughs> right? You've got to, you've got to adapt. Otherwise, uh, we're going to stay there. And, uh, I think someone gave my dad that book for his retirement. He did not appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I saw the uh, cartoon on YouTube. <laughs> well, great. Well, that wraps up our macroeconomic indicator section and. Um, after that, we're going to start with our financial indicators. So just briefly covering with what interest rates are doing right now, the Fed pretty much kept them close to zero for the end of 2020. Uh, with that, uh, 30 and 15-year mortgage rates were hitting very new lows. Uh, in fact, early December marks the 14th record low at home mortgage rates, closing into about 2% uh, for a 15-year fixed mortgage and about 2.5% for a 30-year uh, mortgage rate. Uh, interestingly enough, we saw that refinancing in 2020 was up 89% over 2019. Uh, the Fed is very much so confident moving forward to uh, to a lot of the uh, disinflationary pressures uh, going around uh, the markets currently uh, and seeing that as a positive uh, monetary policy moving forward. Uh, really don't see rates changing very much into 2021. Uh, however, this could change contingent on the new Biden administration and potentially the vaccine rollouts that we're seeing 
uh, coming online in the early part of the year. Uh, briefly switching over to capping the stock indices, uh, all the indices ended up on a positive note. Uh, for 2020, for 2020, and uh, uh, this is surprising considering um, most of the market lost its value back in April and May at the height of the pandemic lockdowns in the U.S. Uh, the Nasdaq, and instantly enough, uh, increased about 16% in Q4 2020 and was up 45% on the entire year. Uh, this was largely led by the tech-heavy stocks in the sector, particularly you know the Amazons, Apple. Uh, Netflix, what have you, as more individuals were adopting tech, uh, tech pieces uh, during the lockdown periods. Uh, modest gains within the New York Stock Exchange and the S&P 500 also showed uh, some improvement therein. And then with the blue chip stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, we also saw um, we also saw levels peaking above the psychological level about 30,000 points. Uh, so yes, that's uh, that's uh, pretty much it on the financial indicators. So uh, why do you, why do you think that the stocks, uh, the tech stock, especially the Nasdaq, because that's the one that house most of them? What do you think is going up during the pandemic, even though every other stock is going down? Uh, yes, so it's just an increased reliance right now on a lot of technolo technological pieces that people are putting together. You know, there's more ordering packages from home, so there's increased Amazon traffic. Uh, individuals are using Zoom and other and other sort of cloud-based uh, meeting software. Uh, Zoom stock, I believe, has gone up probably about two to three hundred percent since 2019. So you have just this, you know, really interesting new ecosystem around uh, technology used uh, at home. You know, less air travel is involved. Uh, just seeing a huge boom within the tech sector as more people are relying on these pieces, um, you know, to do their work. And leisure from from home essentially. Hey, I had a, I wanted to ask you, Adam, about the the interest rates and the kind of the environment that we're getting from the Fed right now. So, is this the new paradigm? We're going to have zero interest rates forever, and we don't have to worry about inflation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean that is a that is sort of a tricky uh, area to get into right now, as we are experiencing a lot of you know increased government stimulus spending right now and economic relief amid just incredibly low uh, interest rates uh, at this point. Uh, you know some of the some of the speculation is that because we have such low access to credit, especially cheap credit right now, that's helping fuel a lot of growth, but that's really manifested itself in the stock market and so forth, but it's not, you know, weighing itself on the actual GDP numbers, which is, I guess, a little bit concerning considering, um, you know, the economic uh, uh, environment is really favoring that additional investment. So we'll have to see moving forward, but <laughs> the Fed has said at this point that, you know, near zero rates will continue probably for another fiscal year, uh, likely to go back up in late 2022 or early 2023. So, wow. yeah. Great. And uh, low interest rates is really fueling the housing market or has fueled the housing market um, in 2020. And we'll talk more about that in our next segment. So that wraps up our financial indicator section. Thank you so much, Adam. And we'll get back to you guys with the industrial indicator center. Prices. So uh, crude prices have continued to recover in recent months uh, after the famous sort of negative pricing from earlier in 2020. So over the month of December, Brent was averaging uh, around $50 a barrel, and WTI at 47. 
the rally has actually continued into January, and now we have WTI prices in the low 50s, uh, and, and really approaching that, that $60 mark at which some analysts see the, the potential for renewed drilling capex in the U.S. Uh, the, the rig counts have indeed ticked up. We're averaging uh, up 25 rigs in December to 260, which is a pretty dramatic recovery, but it still remains way below the pre-pandemic levels. Uh, we had something like eight or 900 rigs uh, active before the pandemic, for a point of comparison. Uh, and so, you know, we are seeing a little bit of a, a, a bounce back in activity, but it's really hard to say that that's a, uh, a recovery at this point. Uh, Looking at refinery utilization, so you know we see the, the the oil getting produced, and then let's see how it's getting used. Utilization rates are also improving. Uh, they they they've made their way back to the low 80 percentiles in recent weeks, and that's versus the low point that apparently was in the 60s during the peak of the shutdown. Uh, however, this is still low relative to a kind of a normal situation where you'd expect utilization of 90 percent during during normal conditions. Right. It's also interesting because you see, I, I mean, we saw some some refineries shut down permanently this year. And so that also factors into that utilization because we had obviously the big PES refinery. Was it PES? Uh-huh. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, yeah. So the Philadelphia yeah, Energy came off. And then there was that, I mean, there have been the, um, what was it, Convent, Shell Convent, Shell shut Convent down permanently. Right. And Marathon Gallup. Mm-hmm. Marathon Gallup yeah. yeah, so you see a lot, especially the smaller refineries. Uh, they were struggling with the, um, especially moving forward as well, it'll be interesting to see how the small refinery exemptions kind of play into that as well, because that has a huge impact on the, the economics of their individual plants. This is exemption for biodiesel mm-hmm. or for renewables? Yeah. Yes, for the, I think that's been a big battle in the past year, um, past couple of years, mm-hmm. well, forever. It's been a battle forever, but, yeah. <laughs> but we've seen a lot of a lot of play in that. But yeah, so that the refinery utilization is uh, it's interesting. Does it factor in the ones that have come off permanently, or is the the baseline? Do you guys know the way that it's the way that the utilization is factored? Is that based on the live refinery units? Yeah, I think it is based off yes. of that. And so, if you had permanent uh, uh, reduction of capacity, then I think it's not showing up in that number. Yeah, and you know, there are some reports from oil economists too that say that, you know, refiner utilization rates probably won't peak back up to, you know, some of these um, historic levels and whatnot. I mean, the EIA, I think, has the three year median or average right now about 88%. So even during this, you know, recessionary period, uh, time of low demand, It'll be interesting to see where that next uh, higher level is right now, especially with capacities being taken offline. And, you know, a big part of that just being converted into renewable diesel and renewable fuels uh, production and distribution. Prior to the pandemic, what was the, the three-year average, do you know? It was about 93%. And it, I think it's good to note that um, biofuels works because of the uh, policy, so of the uh, credits that are generated. So it's really based on the environment that you're operating in. And it works in California, which is why there's a lot of biofuels uh, projects uh, going on over there in California. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's not as efficient as fossil fuels, but uh, 
but it works because of the credits that are generated. And so you can make money doing it. Um, but besides that, buying tallow, buying oil, buying, it's not as efficient as just buying crude oil on the market and, and getting more bang for your buck. It, it does get mixed up in policy though too, right? There's a, um, it, in a way it's kind of a huge farm subsidy so we can grow a lot of corn and a lot of soybean for the purpose of generating these renewable credits. Right, 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 right. right. yeah. I mean, I mean, tit for tat, uh, biofuels is just not as efficient as, as, as fossil fuels and let's just, well, the bio, Let's just be honest. The biorefining market has had such an interesting year too. I mean, just with the corn producers, you have, you see a lot of dry mills. I think it's where it's the wet mills who are the ones who create the most ethane, and so you've seen a lot of them come offline as well. Because what happened in China was they were supposed to go over to E10 fuels permanently this year, <laughs> um, and then they pushed that off indefinitely. So our corn producers were looking towards that shift in China as this oh. huge, like, a great market pressure for them because they were about to see a huge amount of demand. And so they started to ramp up their production only to see that completely get sidelined wow. due to COVID-19. And so that compounded with, you know, the small refinery exemptions kind of being low due to the, uh, the administration. It's been a really interesting, bad year. <laughs> it's been a bad year for corn. Yeah, it gets really political because on one end you've got uh, refining and then on the other end you've got uh, farming. Um, and so whenever you have an increase in uh, those mandates, which was what generates a demand for biofuels, then you have a decrease in uh, market share from refining because that's what's taking over um, uh, what would have been refining demand. So it's, it gets really, really political. Uh, it's really hard to appease both industries. But considering what happened when you have this huge shock in demand for transportation fuels, um, you have both groups trying to, I guess, lobby or trying to, you got one end, you know, we, we have lots of products, so why do you need biofuels? And then you've got the other end, uh, the farmer saying, well, that's going to uh, hit, our, hit our, our market share and that's going to hit our industry. Uh, so it gets really, really political. But going back to transportation fuels, um, obviously no one's flying. Um, a lot of that jet fuel is being um, put into the diesel market. Um, you've got uh, diesel that hurt because of that, over overproduction. Um, we were always oversupplied in the U.S., but we always relied on the Latin American market for exports. But what happened is that you also had an increase in supply from Southeast Asia, and the Middle East, and in China. So when you have an increase in supply uh, in 2019, 2020, and 2021, and then a huge demand shock, there's got to be rationalization. So having these smaller refineries closed down was something that was predicted even uh, pre-COVID, but it just kind of accelerated due to the pandemic. Is it a safe bet between, you know, just coming back to the, the discussion about the renewables and the, the, you know, this this kind of tug of war between the ag interests and the refining interests, uh, is it safe to say that we're walking into a time when, uh, a, with the new administration, that we're going to lean a little more towards the, the greener policies, kind of pro-farmer and, and maybe putting more pressure on the small refiners? We've already seen a rollout. I mean, a, a, you know, a whole slew of new, uh, new regulations that are going to be in place. So I, I would say that yes. And part of it is, uh, part of it is regulation. Yes. And then the other part of it is that consumer demand 
is shifting towards the, the consumer perception or the demand for biofuels mm-hmm. is increasing. And you see your um, a lot of individuals, a lot of organizations are trying to go to more environmentally neutral you know, ways of powering our businesses and our homes. And so we, we will continue to see this battle throughout. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to finish that. We're going to continue to see this battle. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think the other, I mean, we've, we've mentioned this already, but it, it's really hard to compete with mega refineries being uh, constructed on the other side of the world. Uh, our, our typical big refineries here in the U.S. are about 200 to 300,000 barrels per day. Over there, you've got over 600,000 barrels per day for every new refinery being built. Uh, so they're more efficient, uh, lower cost. And, um, I mean, we've, we've said this for about, I don't know, 15, 20 years from now, that there's been a shift in the West to the, to the East in terms of uh, refined fuels. Um, they could just do it much cheaper. Uh, moving ahead, I know that the IEA... With the new report, they lowered their demand for crude oil for 2021. They revised it downward by 0.3 million barrels, uh, according from their last assessment. And I think um, I think that's telling you that it's going to be a a long recovery, and it's going to be not just for everybody, but particularly oil and gas. So do we think it's true? I know that I forgot what the analysts or what which uh, which analysts have report have reported that they thought that we had reached peak oil already. Uh, do we think that we've reached peak oil, or do we still peak have demand. Some peak, peak oil demand? demand. Well, it's or funny. Or do we think we have room to grow? It's funny. Um, I think there's room to grow for only a couple more years. Um, but who am I, right? I'm not one of those major economists, but. Uh, the, it, it's just really funny because I've been in the industry for 15 years and I remember talking about peak supply and now we're talking about peak demand. Um, I'm always going to be, I'm always going to see oil and gas as more efficient than renewables. So for me, especially with seeing the um, after COVID uh, hitting back up, I, I think we still have another 10 years uh, of growth before we hit, we hit peak. And that might be the consensus between a lot of other analysts and economists. So I know that um, in the near term, um, we could see crude prices creeping back up. I know OPEC has continued to cut production. But I think what we need to look at uh, is what happens with Iran. Um, and it um, depends on what Biden will do with the, with the sanctions. If he looks at sanctions, you could see a lot of Iranian crude come to the market. So they, oh no, that was Iraq. Well, I do know, (laughs) I also know that there have been reports in China with new COVID cases. And so I think that's why recently, recently we've seen a decline in crude prices uh, back down. And this was after it reached uh, the mid fifties. But now it's starting to decline, I think, because of news of new cases rising in China. I heard that China had their worst COVID case, new cases day since March this past week. So it, it is climbing again, which is, you know, bad news. Um, so we'll, I guess we'll just have to see how the vaccine plays in with this this time. 
Yeah, and you know, even in the midst of these rollouts right now, we are seeing a new, you know, series of variant strains that are popping up in Europe. Uh, UK in particular got hit hard and they went back to their lockdown measures we saw, you know, early last year when you know, pretty much everyone was on lockdown. But now we've seen, you know, continental Europe also, you know, shutting down in various forms. And so that's actually impacting demand moving forward, uh, along with China and the ongoing cases in the U.S. Yeah, that's a good point, Adam. This new variant seems to be more contagious, and I think I might have seen a report where um, might have been more deadly as well. And the Economist just reported that they anticipate that it's going to be the predominant strain in the United States by March. Wow. So. Well, I guess we <laughs> forward to 2022 then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps up our. Wraps uh, up on a high note. Yeah. Wraps up our crew. Um, and then when we come back, we'll hit auto and housing, two of the sectors, uh, and also large economic indicators and barometers for the U.S. economy. Thanks. Well, we've had a great discussion. Uh, now let's go ahead and end this podcast with some fun stuff. So um, I've got something for you guys. Um, according to a study... Uh, some 15% of men didn't wash their hands at all compared to only 7% of women. Now, um, a bigger study published in 2009 uh, that used more tech methods uh, at, at a busy highway rest stop in the UK uh, <laughs> said that – so the study found that only 31% of men and 65% of women washed their hands with soap. And this is based on 200,000 restroom trips over a three-month period. How did they find that out? Yeah, I so my question about is, their experimental is, is this a self-reporting thing, or do we have to wor be worried about mm -hmm. cameras in the bathroom? Well, that explains a lot. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is – so I know uh, just from going out a lot um, – <laughs> And I'm almost and I'm almost 40, so I've been going a lot, out a lot for the past 20 years. I know I've seen people uh, from all different classes and ages, and I, I can see it. Guys really don't wash their hands a lot or consistently. And um, uh, some people just use water, but I've seen a lot of people who just use the restroom and then just leave. Um, I've even seen it at, at gyms where even the, um, the, uh, the staff will go in there, use the restroom, and then walk out. Uh, in addition to the, the people using oh. the gym and then going out there and using. So this is pretty interesting. And this study uh, was done. So this is on a report that was uh, published April 2020. But I think this is interesting because given these statistics with a bad germ, something like this was bound to happen in terms of the pandemic. Uh, just given something, just given something bad and given how we're not very sanitized. Um, <laughs> well, hey, speak for yourself. I mean, I'm part of the, uh, the clean half of this data set. I'm looking at four guys at this table. That means half of you didn't wash your hands. <laughs> I'm a germaphobe. I wash my hands a lot and I have to use a lot of hand lotion <laughs> to, uh, because I always have dry hands, but yeah, no, I honestly, even before COVID, I, I didn't like shaking people's hands that much because I knew that guys just don't wash their hands. Oh. Um, 
On, Who is going to tell me? <laughs> honestly, honestly, I prefer the honorable bow that the Japanese use. It's it's honorable. <laughs> You're giving the other person a lot of respect, and you don't have to touch their dirty hands. <laughs> Man. I, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to start out by saying I think I always wash my hands, but I do think we're talking about going out a lot. There is that bathroom attendant who is sometimes there, which is complete disincentive to washing your hands because <laughs> you know they're going to hold out the soap for you and then there's like a tip involved. And it just, the, the whole experience. I don't like touching people in general. And so just, I don't want anyone near me when I've done that. So it's just a very weird experience. So I don't know. Maybe these uh, scientists implanted some uh, bathroom attendants to do the statistics. Yeah, do you see a lot of bathroom attendants at truck stops in the UK? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is yeah, this is an article. <laughs> this is an article published by CNN. So, um, but it's it's funny. So when I uh, the last time Thank I was you. sick. <laughs> now here in, in in 2020, I didn't get sick because we were all wearing masks and everybody was washing their hands. Um, and and normally I get sick about two or three times a year. But it, the last time I was sick was in 2019, and I could tell you where I got it from because I um, I was at a conference here in Houston, and um, and being a germaphobe I am, um, I was looking at the presenter who was coughing on his hand, but he was coughing on his hand while holding the presenter on uh, or the clicker on the other hand, but then he switched hands and then started coughing on the other hand, and so and he was a great presenter. I'm not going to say who he is, uh, confidentiality. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But great presenter. A lot of people were shaking his hand afterwards. And then we went to a networking break. Now, I did, and this was around October, and I did hear a lot of people coughing. And I guess people naturally want to cover their, their mouths when they cough with their hands. Uh, I always use my elbow, but I'm a germaphobe. And seeing others, I knew that it was bound to happen where um, some people were going to get sick. And unfortunately, I got sick. And that was the last time that I got sick. So I don't know if it was a germ, and hopefully it wasn't COVID, because who knows when COVID was here in the U.S. But um, I know for a fact that a lot of people were sick there, and they were coughing on their hands, including the presenter. And um, and and it's just a thing. It's like, why do we continue to shake hands? Why is why is that a thing? Should we do away with that? Because why is it that in 2020 hardly any of us got sick? <laughs> why is it that in 2020 hardly any of us got sick? Now I know that there's some science behind. Well, you kind of want your body to develop antibodies, right? Um, but knowing what we know about how dirty people are, and know, knowing what, <laughs> and knowing what we know about—I uh, mean, who knows? This 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 COVID-19 may not be the—I mean, it, it'll be the—it's the first since the Spanish influenza or at least the first pandemic since the Spanish influenza uh, here in the U.S., not counting uh, SARS, Mars, or, or swine or whatever. But, um, I mean, this is bound to happen again. I mean, at least I think so. I don't know. What say you? I think I'm going to keep wearing a mask at, like, airports moving yeah. forward. That's one of the big takeaways, and I was talking to you know, some of my siblings about this, too, is it just makes sense. People uh -huh. are dirty. Or, well, people are... Yeah, people are dirty. <laughs> half of men are really dirty. But according no, to this I mean, study, more than we half all have men. dirty. Yeah. <laughs> we, I people get sick, and mm -hmm. I I used to get sick after every like long term flight. When I went home for the holidays, I would get sick almost every time just being in the airport. So now that I've been uh, wearing a mask, you're right. Like I have not gotten sick this year either. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, 
going to keep the mask on going yeah. to the public restrooms from now on. It's just life changing. Mm-hmm. And and it kills two birds with one stone. When you're networking, you're 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 not contracting. You're, you're not breathing on each other's faces. So it, it protects Wait, both. How are you networking? <laughs> if, I'm not. If we network, <laughs> if we network moving forward, I'll tell you. Well, this is the outlook, right? So you close. <laughs> well, you see, if we if we if we ever get back to normalcy, uh, we could continue wearing a mask, and it kills two birds with one stone. One, you don't have to breathe on each other's faces, um, and, and and spread germs. But two, also uh, coffee breaks, right? People have coffee breath. <laughs> Why are you looking at me? <laughs> well, uh, you, you said you're a heavy coffee drinker. <laughs> No, I, I'm being silly, but uh, no, but but honestly, uh, you know, according to this study, I mean, we weren't very clean. Uh, we didn't wash our hands. Uh, uh, the COVID was a very bad thing that happened, but I'm just glad that we're all washing our hands now. Um, and just like Juliana said, uh, I'm going to be wearing a mask as well, um, going to public places like the airports that tend to be very, very dirty. <laughs> including including the airplanes. I mean yeah, how dirty right. how dirty are those airplanes? Yeah. Especially so closely combined too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I remember sitting by one guy in a long flight back from Asia and he was just coughing on his hands and then uh, he started wiping his nose with his hands as well. And uh, and I trying to it's like I couldn't get away from him because then I would be closer to the guy in the middle of me who I didn't know. And so, oh yeah, fifteen, the days. 15 hour flight. He's sweating. Wow. He's sweating. <laughs> yeah, y'all can't see this. Sweating profusely. Thank you for joining us for the AIA Buzzworthy Analytics Podcast. Join us next time when we talk about the same stuff. Oh, <laughs> no, over and over.